Thank you for downloading this episode of Software Gone Wild, a podcast focused on everything software defined. To get more episodes and explore other SDN and network automation resources, visit sdn.ipspace.net. Welcome to another episode of Software Gone Wild. We've been discussing all sorts of things in the recent podcasts, but uh, we sort of didn't touch on any classical networking topics recently, so it was time to go back to the basics. And surprise, surprise, while everyone was talking about context-driven, intent-based, blah, blah, there's some real stuff going on in large-scale data centers. It all started with Peter Lapuko saying, well, I will not run OSPF on my 10,000 switches and decided to do that with BGP, wrote an RFC, and everyone picked that up. And that madness got to a point where a vendor that I will not name started doing designs for the customers where they have four switches, two leaves, two spines, and they run BGP between them, between draft Lapuko something. As always, people like lemmings go into whatever direction. Anyway, there are people who think that they can do it better than Peter did with BGP. And there are two or three different proposals being discussed recently. And I said, well, it's time to focus on them and see what these people are doing and why they are doing something different. Today, we'll start with Rift. And we have two guests, the original sinner. Uh, Tony, now I forgot your last name again. The other Tony, Tony P works. It's Tony Pshigenda for people who want to keep tabs, you know, precisely. Tony is the author of Rift. Rift is now an official ITF working group, and uh, chairing that is our longtime friend, uh, Jeff Tansura. Uh, I hope I got that right. Absolutely. And keeping us honest and talking nice about SNMP is, as always, Chris Young. <laughs> yes, it's ugly, but it's my baby. Tony, let's start with a little bit of background. What are you doing because you've never been on the show before? How did you bump into routing protocols? What's your history with these beasts? I started routing protocols probably 1990, so that's a while. There wasn't much there and have been on and off on them most of the time since. So I kind of have a pretty long history with those whole things. Bouncing on and off, wrote probably five or six IGPs, one or two BGPs, PNNI. It's always like these kind of problems, uh, the loosely synchronized database, basically. The only hard problem in networking, really. But, you know, let's not go deeper there. So yeah, I have a quite quite a long background. I have also quite a long background with all these data center stuff. I talked to Microsoft about their original approaches probably 10 years ago, which were actually not even IP. Originally, everything was done L2, and they thought they can do Mac in Mac and had a lot of interesting ideas. But you know how it goes. Once you have a real problem, you need IP routing anyway. It keeps a lot of people like me employed, you know, and pays for nice lunches and dinners. Yeah, so in short, yeah, I have a quite a long background in routing protocols in all variations. So there was this original realization from all the big players that they cannot use an IGP in their data center. And then, as I said, Peter came with this idea of using BGP. What's wrong with that idea and why do we need yet another routing protocol? 
Nothing wrong with the idea. So actually, I think people uh, attribute a little bit, you know, too much of um, intelligent design to the whole thing. So as far as I could reconstruct the story, you know, having talked to all kind of uh, actors, the large data center guys were all kind of acting independently, right? So Google was building stuff actually quite early, and uh, they have this thing called Firepath, I think. Um, they change the names all the time. So they went very early into a completely different idea. They never looked at L2. They immediately went L3, but hugely centralized. So if you look at the original ideas by people like, who is the CTO, Urs, and uh, the gang around the data centers, they wanted to centralize everything because their point was to build a cheapest possible router. And they went from a very extreme design point where actually we're pulling up every Hello packet into a controller, believe it or not. And meanwhile, from what I understood, it settled towards something where the keep alive, the Hello, the fast reroute is being done right on the local devices. But all the database, link state database is being centralized up. But, you know, they published it stuff, but they didn't try to kind of uh, impose it wildly on um, other designs. And it also has to do a lot with the fact, you know, which companies people are moving to. So Microsoft, after their L2, they went into the BGP directions. There was a couple of uh, reasons why they picked it. One of the really important ones is that BGP is quite easy to hack. Right, and uh, it is not that easy to find a good open source IGP. And the moment you touch an IGP, and especially flooding, things can go wrong very quickly. So BGP is, in a sense, more friendly towards experimentation, and and you know that's a very valid reason if you want to get stuff done. And then uh, I think it was actually Li Hua, Dave Maltz, more those people who started it in uh, Microsoft. And then I don't understand how Peter was involved there, but he was there very early. And once he moved over to Facebook, you know, they're more community facing. They're publishing the stuff more. And some of these ideas kind of sublimed into Facebook design. Uh, Peter is very handsome. And if you look at RFC, that's BGP in large DC. It's not a new protocol. It's really operational consideration how to use BGP. So he set up all the things together. He wrote some small things on top of it. So it's really deployment practice. It's not a new protocol. So this is how Peter got involved. Yeah, so, you know, my point is don't attribute too much of, like, you know, deep thinking and people having a plan and having done a perfect analysis on a lot of this stuff. Lots of these things, people just grew up with the problem and grabbed whatever was on the floor and the people who made stuff work, like Peter, that was what worked, right? And lots of people talked about a lot of other stuff. So now that this kind of became a better understood problem and also a problem where lots of money is on the table, right? It's, I think, worth to think through how can you solve the problem well. And now solving the problem well is, of course, slightly different for different people, what that means. But where I see an opportunity, and that's where the Rift work comes from, is that a lot of people are building data centers and they are building them larger and larger as they shoot. I think we, sh we will consume more and more bandwidth. And what I think hits them or what I observe over the last 10 years is that the top five or seven guys are basically able to run OPEX for free. They can hire enormous amount of the smartest people on the planet. They have a lot of these people. They have large scale operations. 
and they can build proprietary system, provisioning system, they can solve problems in their own way because they simply have the money and the people on the floor. Whereas a lot of people who will go into or are going to this building of the large fabrics will not have necessarily this luxury, both in terms of money and people. So Rift is kind of aiming in addressing this part of the market, if you want, which I frankly see Fortune 1000, something along those lines. But, you know, we see how it responds. It will, it will be fed by the community uh, feedback, right? And, and adopt to what is the problem that uh, is worth solving. Okay, so before we go into the details, let's try to scope this thing. At what size would it make sense to start deploying something new like Rift? So at what size would I say, well, this doesn't make sense trying to solve with OSPF or ISIS? Practical limitation of something like OSPF and ISIS when you build a large fabric is flooding, mostly, right? Because let's look at the history of OSPF, ISIS, and all these linked protocols, traditional protocols we're running. We have optimized them for sparse meshes, both algorithmically as well in terms of protocol design. So data centers are just the opposite thing, right? It's, it's very densely meshed environment. And those problems have been faced somewhat in the past. And there are approaches like they've cut flood meshes, um, if you're familiar with the stuff, long expired draft. We have some implementation, other people have implementation that leads to a lot of like manual maintenance of sparse flood meshes and it's fragile, so it was never really caught on. But let's say you deploy a flat IGP. If your data center is not too big, I don't know, you know, depends on the quality of implementation very much, but dozens possibly. Just as a, as a quick point, yeah. what is, define the word not too big. What is that uh, from a scale standpoint? A couple dozen, a hundred okay. switches. What you really are limited by is your flood mesh. It is not really the number of switches. It is how many links do you have as adjacencies, right? At okay. which point in time your flooding basically start to melt down. So it's both flooding-wise and operational-wise, ability to change the way your traffic flows, ability to apply policies to it in IGP is extremely complicated. So we need to look at it from operational perspective as well. So first conclusion, if you have less than a low hundred number of switches, you don't have a problem. I think you'll be hitting it like below 100, maybe 100. It really depends. I don't think you can run like 300 switches data center. Well, let's put it that way. If you're willing to wait for the initial convergence and then nothing happens, things work fine. Yeah. At infinite scale. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So... Uh, the question is, you know, how stable is an environment? But if you have something like 100 switches and you have one or two or, you know, half a dozen link failures, I think you'll be pretty surprised what behavior IGP exhibits, especially if it's not well implemented. And there are a few good implementations of IGP at scale on the planet. We know that, right? Okay. Less than 100 switches, you don't have a problem. More than 100 switches, life gets interesting. This is... Worry, crude oversimplification, but we have to start somewhere. Sure. So I, I might bring one more point from timing perspective. So there's a new group in U.S. called EDCA. Those are enterprise people who are trying to better understand why they're running, what they're running, 
and what's next does the president in ATF. We are helping them to come up and talk about the requirements. So they did a survey, and it looks like 50% of them still run EIGRP, and more than 50% of them run combination of EIGRP, OSPF, and BGP. So it's time to do something about it, and they are very much interested. But is that within the data center or across their whole network? Within data centers. And, and 80% so whatever, of them don't understand why they run any of those. Yeah, so whatever Cisco sold them. Why would anyone want to run EIGRP and OSPF <laughs> in the same data center? Sorry, I forgot. You're the cynical one, Ivan. So every two years, you'll get a sales representative selling new protocols saying it's going to solve all your issues. You deploy. Uh, yeah, I actually know a customer who has like three different generations of data center. That's my point. The first one built with CAT 6500, the second one built with Nexus 7000, and for the third one, I think they went with Arista or something. Anyway, the second big question, do we really need policy within the data center or is bandwidth cheaper than operational expense of maintaining the policy? That is actually an extremely interesting question. So one of the reasons why BGP was used and eBGP, right, was that there was a desire to apply policies. Now, the story is how much of the traffic shaping in data center has been done in production very widely. By my readings, not much have been done, in fact. All right. So that is a function of uh, you have to build some kind of a controller infrastructure. You are limited in speed of how quickly can you apply those things from a controller and um, what is the traffic distribution in your data center. And the traffic distribution in the data center is changing widely. So what I observe over the last 10 years that for a lot of people, it moved from 80-20 north-south um, to 80-20 east-west, right? Uh, the fat flows, the elephant flows are uh, a Pareto distribution, which basically means there is more of them that, you know, they sh it should be under normal distribution, but it's still a fairly minuscule amount. So the question, is it practical? Uh, I don't think so, except for a few people who really have a deep clue and understand their data centers very well and possibly even shape on the edges. So now... Bandwidth is cheap, yes, and if we build something that is a component, like a solid-state disk or a RAM chip, and that's where Rift is aiming at, then we should just buy more of cheap bandwidth and stick it together and consume it, just like we don't argue about size of RAM chips anymore. We just buy more and stick them. Now, that is not the full answer because we have failures on the data centers. We have asymmetry in bandwidth. We have lack groups and this kind of stuff. Um, so people do want uh, a certain control over the distribution of bandwidth. And um, the next version of Rift being published, and I'm working closely with a couple of customers, we are actually proposing, and you can only do that on Rift because Rift is loop-free, which means we are not bound by ECMP we can actually modify the route distances to have weighted ECMP and account for uh, bandwidth asymmetry in a somewhat coarse scale, but an automatic scale, and from what it looks like, good enough. And of course, you know, very responsive. 
So, yes, it's an interesting question with a lot of dimensions. I think there is a bunch of solutions that people will apply, and you can go all the way from a controller solution, understanding fully your traffic pattern and shaping on the edges, to something which coarsely does it automatically for you, looking at the bandwidth available. So maybe if we can back up for a second, because I don't know if we've actually addressed this. What is Rift? No, we are not there yet. We're not there yet? No. Okay. <laughs> so to add to Tony's points, and again, to emphasize one of the reasons to use BGP was ability to advertise prefixes with third-party next hub, which is built into BGP, and change the behavior. So to some degree, it's course traffic engineering. Looking at end-to-end solution for the last couple of years, I still cannot find a reason to do traffic engineering in data centers. The complexity completely outweighs the gains. Thank you. On another side, if you look at regular data center, we see lots about 40 to 50%. So people do want to get to 70, 80. And especially as they hear from Google, you know, on the conference, we run our network hot at 95%. They start thinking, why not me? Because Google schedules their flows in advance and it's not in the data center, but on the WAN network. So they're not even listening at what Google is telling them. And if I know my traffic flows in advance for the next week, yes, I can schedule them. Thank you. Back to Rift. To some degree, there is a need to near real-time react on distribution of elephant and mouse flows. There is a need to provide non-shortest path routing. There is a need to provide flooding facility to policies up and down that could be applied when partition happens, when particular thresholds and conditions are met. So we need more flexibility in general. Okay. Now the uh, next academic question. Then, Chris, yes, we, I promise we will get to Rift. <laughs> We are still the blind man with an elephant in a dark room. Well, if we're blind, it doesn't even matter whether the room is dark, does it? Okay. (laughs) I don't want to know where my hand is. Does it make sense to solve the elephant-mice flow uh, challenge in the network? Or shall we go back to the old RFC and read again about the architectural principles and solving the problem at the edge and solve the problem on the host? There is multipath TCP that can do something, and there are these ideas like Flowbender, which twists the IPv6 flow label or TTL to put sessions that experience congestion as indicated by ECN bits on different ECMP paths. Yes, profound. So if we do something in hardware and we do something like flow lets on ACI, we will have to change the way IP forwarding silicon works. And that is a very expensive proposition, right? So, for example, I did not take Rift in this direction. I think that we have to live with very cheap silicon and the only thing we can get is ECMP, maybe weighted ECMP and longest prefix match. And that is what it is as a substrate. And everything, in my opinion, has to be done on top. Uh, multipath TCP is excellent, right? Like changing ECMP weighting is excellent. ECN if it's fast enough. Yes, if we have, but then again, goes to the OPEX. 
if you have smart people, yes, you will shape on the edge. And everybody, all the big data centers operators are doing that. But that means that you have to go and mark in your kernel and schedule your flow and understand your services. And that's you know, a difficult proposition. Yeah, you actually have to understand what you're doing. I agree with you. That's hard for many people. Yes. Okay, so now to the question that Chris wanted to ask for the last 25 minutes. What is Rift? So I chime in. So I spend a lot of time, you know, uh, working with people, looking at the BGP modification, the IGP modification, talking through those things and observing the problem. And after a good many rounds, I realized that we would benefit from building a protocol which is radically different from everything we were doing so far. And in simplest terms, it is a protocol which is a link state going north and a distance vector going south. As strange as it sounds. So imagine that you flood only in the northern direction towards the superspines. So the superspines hold all the topology, while everybody southbound just gets a D4 route and uses ECMP over a D4 route, which is actually enough in a data center. And out of that fall out a lot of very interesting positive properties to run a data center fabric. So that's Rift, basically, in its kernel. Okay, so the problem I have with that, in principle, is that the moment you get some link failure somewhere, any summarization, including the default route, can lead to a black hole. And you're hitting right there the nail on the head. So that was considered an unsolvable problem. So actually, it falls out that it can be solved. So Rift does an automatic deaggregation, which is sufficient and necessary to prevent black hole. Yes. Let's forget about the details for the moment. Anyone on level N advertises the prefixes they know to level N plus one. Yes. And N plus one advertises just the default route to level N. Yes. Plus the absolute minimum of more specific prefixes for those leaves that are not connected to all the spines. Yes, that's, uh, yeah, it's good enough. That's the first approximation, yes. Uh, the, the details always get gory, but yes, that's precisely how it works. Okay, so like in every routing protocol now, if we go into more details, you need some way of discovering the neighbors. Anything new there? Mm, that looks like ISIS. So the underlying mechanism is uh, pretty much link state flooding, which has a lot of desirable properties, convergence speed, and so on and so on. It's not easy to build, but it's well understood. And it runs over UDP for a lot of reasons we can talk about. So I think it's important before we continue with what Rift does is really to discuss what Rift is. And Rift is schema-based protocol. It's not TLV-based as link state protocols we know today. And it brings really interesting properties to it. How do you change protocol? How do you innovate? How do you include new things in the protocol without going through three years of standardization cycle? And this is very fundamental to protocol design. Okay, so TLV-based stuff is where you define this flexible structure where every element has uh, its type, its length, so you know how long it is, and then there comes the value. 
and it can be used for OS, no, not in OSPF, it's an OSPF version 3 maybe, it's in ISIS, it's in BGP, it's, if I remember correctly, in EIGRP. So everyone was using this approach. What's this schema-based stuff? If you take any protocol that is there today, you change anything besides redefining meaning of communities in BGP, it has to go back to the vendor, has to be hard-coded, has to be validated, tested, and everyone had to agree what actually we are running if you're on multi-vendor world. In schema-based protocol, you just change schema definition, you agree on version, you are done. It could be as fast as a day of work to introduce completely new functionality. I'm talking about what protocol does with the data distribution. I'm not talking about insights, how the data is treated, parsed, and so forth. But from changes to protocol, it could be as fast as you can. And schema would be what? Something like a Yang data model? It's a Drift-based um, protocol. Okay. So we can dive into this model details and so on, but there's a fundamental observation here that the data center guys, why they started to not be happy with the protocols we have is that um, they need much faster ref cycles. All the over-the-top players are used to software being graphed very quickly. And when they found the IP routing in its state, they found something where anything to be touched took six months if you were on a super fast schedule and threw a lot of money at it. And that is simply not the speed they're working at. So that was their first observation. The second observation, when they started to look at the way those protocols were built, they started to ask, why, is, why are so many things hand-woven? That, of course, has a very good reason. In 99, we were starting on 300 megahertz processors, right? So all the parsers, all the data elements, always being handwritten and highly uh, compacted and aligned. So, you know, OSPF is a case in point where, you know, uh, not even TLBs were used for actually speed purposes. The world moved on with the CPU cycles available, with the memory footprint available, and also technologies, schema technologies we have available. It is absolutely feasible to build uh, protocols that are schema-based, which basically means that we describe what the data looks like and all the parsing, serialization, deserialization code is being generated and included in the protocol, which gives you a much faster turnaround times on any changes, but also much higher degree of confidence that what you have is correct, right? And OpenR is a case in point, right? Where, uh, again, the name always comes up, Peter started to push the schema stuff. And frankly, I originally thought that this is not particularly feasible until I stood convinced by writing code and trying it otherwise. Uh, so I think that we may see a movement in this direction more and more, given you know the benefits of it and the fact that we have the hardware envelope to do such things now. Okay, so a 10,000, uh, no, it's 30,000 foot view. Uh, always mix up the units. In TLV world, you have an item, it can be a prefix, it can be anything, and then you attach a number to attributes to it, and those attributes, as we discussed, uh, have different types and length and value. And what you're saying here is that now 
you are ready to send the whole data structures around like we have them in any programming language. So it can be a dictionary or a hash array or whatever you want to call that, or it can be a list or it can be in any combination of those data structures, which obviously makes everyone's life easier because now we can describe the data in the way the data should be structured, not the way that the bit-level technology is dictating. Am I getting this sort of right? Yes, that's one way to see that. Actually, you know, under this schema, if you look at the code generated and what's happening on the wire, it's not that different. It's basically TLDs as well, if you want, right? It's just like you described. We work at a higher abstraction level, which allows us to focus on the problem rather than, you know, how to mesh up this problem and unmesh it again in terms of bits. So we have something, for example, like the mandatory optional that uh, we have to hand to on the TLDs and IGPs never got to it. We have it in the schemas. Just like you said, we can express a set without having to define on the TLD all the detailed semantics and probably missing the corner cases. So in a sense, what we get out is a more orthogonal more correct, easier to comprehend, and also more flexible encoding, right? So we kind of go and focus on solving the real problems, which is what do we do with this data to get, you know, the desirable forwarding behavior rather than spending enormous amount of time on reinventing those TLDs all the time and have them step onto each other in unforeseen ways. Okay. So we finally realized that parsers, uh, serializers, and presentation layer formats are a solved problem and started focusing on content. Yes. Well, we can afford that. Let's put it that way. Uh, given the hardware, and hardware envelope we had, we could not afford that. Not in 1990. I, I agree with that. But uh, that was 25 years ago. Well, some habits die hard, especially if they're highly profitable. We all know that, right? Okay, I'm not going down that path. <laughs> <laughs> and to come back on your comment about Yan, for me, protocol doesn't exist if it doesn't have associated data model. First, Rift data model has been published on GitHub yesterday. It's going to be presented, coming ITF. It's coming together with the protocol. So not only we are getting protocol, we are getting way to operate and understand operational state compared to, you know, intended state and all the great stuff we can do with data models. So, but when you talk about the Yang data model, that's the management stuff, that's the configuration and the operational statistics, right? It's not the data model used to exchange data between routers? No, no, it's data model to express your management intent. Oh, sorry, I'm not going to use the word intent. <laughs> it's to configure device. It's when you do streaming telemetry, it's to take this value and build structured data that represents operational state. Okay. Coming back to details. Tony, you mentioned that this thing runs on UDP. So you decided to go for IP-based transport. You, you don't use your own ether type like ISIS. I lived through all these ISIS battles since it's, you know, early Gory days. And something like its own ether type or even an IP protocol type is actually imposing quite a load in terms of practical deployment. 
well, a practical implementation. For example, the ISIS, and that was perceived actually a plus then, because it was security through obscurity, was forcing you to change kernels. And no one was doing LLC snap in its time. Changing a kernel is nothing for the faint-hearted, as we know, right? And it causes a lot of other interesting problems, like, for example, how do you run multiple instances of the same protocol? If you go over something like UDP, you can very easily instantiate multiple instances of these things running over tunnels. Okay, you, you don't impose any kind of hardware or kernel changes uh, that are necessary. So it presents just practically a lot of benefits. Let's go a little bit deeper here. So some people are actually preferring TCP. And frankly, we can run Rift over TCP. Some people are talking about a different schema to express, you know, the data that needs to synchronize Rift. And I tell them, be my guest. People ask me, why did you pick up choices? And my answer is, you know, to a certain extent, probably Peter's answer, because this was the stuff that practically worked. I could implement it. Okay. And I've been through all the different things from, you know, adding ether types, IP protocol types. I think I have my own even. And, you know, I went through the whole TCP thing, running BGP over TCP. I had original discussion with the Echo Rector why I thought going over TCP will long-term present a lot of problems. We made a whole industry out of that, right? NSR, you know, we have a single session with a lot of, you know, interesting address family on top. Uh, so I find that plotting over UDP works extremely well. It's extremely practical. And that's where I took it for the moment. Now that you mentioned flooding, somehow the information needs to be exchanged between the leaves and the spines, and we have this additional interesting problem that spines sometimes cannot talk to each other. So how do you implement flooding in Rift? What is flooded? Is it like in uh, OSPF, where it's really a distributed database and everyone is eventually sharing the same data and running the same algorithm on it? Or is it something else? So now we're really going into the you know, slowly the pits of hell. So uh, the analogy to <laughs> oh, someone like that, right? <laughs> so if Rift actually gets adopted and deployed, uh, there will be a lot of the network engineers that will find a completely new toy and a lot of interesting things in it, you know, and find a lot of job security and, you know, hobby pursuit for the, for the next couple of years. So, yeah, so on the surface, this is just flooding, right? Because that's what people respond to. Everyone understands what that means. Now, Rift does flooding in a highly controlled way. So what you end up with, and that's part of the trick, is that not every node holds the same information. So there is no flat link state database. You could use Rift like that. You just flood it flat. But then you face all the IGP problems again. Rift is doing flooding in scopes. Now, what does that mean? In IGP, we already have flooding scopes. We have link local flooding scope. We have area flooding scope, right? To scale IGP, some of these games have already been played. And in a sense, Rift is taking it to the extreme. So we have well-defined flooding scopes. It's basically one table which tells you which information elements are going north and which information elements are going south. And 
the point of the exercise is that you end up on every node with just the amount of link state database that you need to get your work done, okay? Which leads to a lot of desirable properties. One of them is that you have a very contained blast radius. So let's say I have a flat IGP running on a data center and one link flaps or one prefix get added, which today with containers is a very, very frequent occurrence, right? In a flat IGP, you have to flood it across the whole data centers. Every node has to store it. Every node has to, after the flooding, recompute the tables. In Rift, the blast radius is very minimal. So the flooding only goes in the radius that is necessary to get the work done. And what these flooding scopes look like, that's really like, you know, read the friendly manual that has been published because then we will really be here for the whole day. So I was going to say, so a couple of things, and I actually am reading the manual in the background. So yes, draft four. It looks like number one, and I just want to make sure that I understand this, that you are anticipating that this is going to be a clove fat tree, um, typical spine leaf. That's how this is going to be implemented. We're not going to be seeing strange, obscure topologies where Rift makes sense. Is that another, accurate? And, and not a wonderful red hole. So I'm writing the draft for the clause. Now, the claw has a long history since the 50s. We can go back there, why people came up with that stuff and why the math still holds, if you want, a lot of bandwidth with predictable blocking probabilities. And I don't think people will find a better solution. There is some yep. very deep thinking that has been done there. Yep. Now, Rift by itself is really just relying on directionality. So if you look, why can we even play games is because we went away from arbitrary meshes. Arbitrary meshes are solved. We did it for 25 years. The data center gives us directionality. That's why the data center folks are always talking about north, south, east, west, and so on. Now, Rift needs this directionality to work. If we talk about an arbitrary mesh, Rift will not buy you anything. Then you can fall back basically to traditional IGPs. I was going to say, just for the record, the fact that we are agreeing as an industry on what a data center looks like to some degree is a really good thing, <laughs> just for the record. Uh, well, we have predictability. To, unless everybody is willing, you know, to build huge amount of OPEX and huge IT departments and, you know, do their own thing. I don't think the directionality will go away. And that's what I'm playing. Now, once we're in this directionality, there is a lot of things you could do. I mean, there are uh, no diagonal meshes. There's there's a lot of approaches. Clause has a lot of properties that are very desirable. Rift will work if you put shortcuts into the clause between levels and so on, but then you lose certain properties. And I have a section explaining what will happen. You just either you start to bow tie through the fabric, okay, or if you want optimal routing, then you have to distribute more information everywhere. There are other approaches where people are thinking about doing a full mesh at pod level, okay, which uh, has its own appeal. So Rift will support that. Rift has a full uh, architectural support for leaf-to-leaf -leaf shortcuts. So you could build the full meshes. There are even more advanced people thinking about stuff like uh, Dragonfly, if you're familiar with that stuff. That is a very peculiar topology that has been used to a certain extent uh, by non-uniform memory access, NUMA, so basically supercomputing people. 
In my opinion, that will not make a lot of headway because Dragonfly uh, has difficulties in multiple dimensions which are very desirable in data center. For example, load balancing on Dragonflies is very non-trivial. You would have to build something really wild because when you use anything that looks like ECMP, you can only saturate about half of Dragonfly. And Dragonfly, because of the NUM architecture, relies on uniform link bandwidth and basically uniform delays. So that's the red hole. No, no, that's that's awesome. Um, and my my second question as a I understand the flooding behavior as opposed to IGP. But if we assume that it is going to be spine leaf, and if we take what is, and I, I will use this word standard here, it is a typical design where you've got single area BGP in your spine, and each leaf is its own area. How does that contrast Rift's behavior in that kind of a scenario from a flooding where I'm not necessarily flooding to all of every peer? How is that different with Rift? So here I'm mildly lost. Are we talking about the flooding reductions that the rift doesn't flood over all the links or, or, or which direction are we heading? Uh, yeah. So earlier you made the point of rift compared to a standard IGP where, you know, if I inject a prefix in anywhere from a Docker uh -huh. container. Okay. In that context, using a standard IGP, if I was to be using like EBGP between in a spine leaf where I have every single leaf and call it a rack, usually two switches, would be that its own AS, and then you might have a spine as an AS. Why would yeah. Rift have any advantages there? Uh, okay, so let's talk about the flooding behavior and why it's a problem from two angles, from compared to traditional IGP and compared to something like EBGP. Okay. So, like we talked before, the problem is really that we're running a dense mesh. If we wouldn't have such a high density of links, those problems wouldn't be so pressing. But now imagine that all of a sudden we deal with people who have 256 fanouts out of switches and they are seriously talking 512. Not a joke. So now all of a sudden you find yourself with 500 BGP peers. That is not an easy problem to tackle. What you find on top is that it is not IBGP, which means that you're building an update per peer, which is a tricky proposition. All right. Even if you run peer groups, that is still not a trivial problem to solve. So BGP is not built, especially on the eBGP side, to run huge number of peers. Okay. So here you it's just implementation thing, right? You have okay. an interesting implementation problem to solve. But you when you say it's not designed, is that with the idea that a human being would be making all those modifications? Does, no, uh, does, auto, about, does automation I'm, help here at all? I guess. No, no, I'm talking purely about performance now of okay. how quick can you propagate information, right? So you have to construct and push these 500 updates out the box per peer. If anything changes, all of these guys need their own little AS path and whatever thing is not, all the attributes. Now, on top of that, even if you go and start to push the stuff relatively quickly, BGP is a what you call a diffuse computation, which means that everybody has to go and process the update, do something with it, prepare, and push it out again, right? So you have a processing before you can propagate information. When you look at an IGP, you have no processing. You can, in parallel, store it in your database and push it out the other links. That's why IGPs converge much faster when you push things to the extreme, right? Uh -huh. Now, the IGPs 
still the problem of replicating across 500 links and maintaining like who acknowledged the stuff, who needs retransmission and so on, very quickly overwhelms you. BGP here starts to play to the, what starts to play for the BGP is that you only send the diffs. The prefix change, I only update the prefix. The IGPs today tend to send huge chunks of information if anything changes, right? So you have those dimensions to play with. So now Rift addresses that in, in two dimensions. Even when it goes southbound, it floods. It does not do like BGP and update per peer. So that allows it to go much faster. Okay. The second one is that Rift allows you to do automatic flat load balancing. So it prunes the mesh. It understands because the topology is irregular and we have the enough information, we can decide that the nodes start to load balance flooding. So you, not everybody has to reflood everything. How should I put it in a simpler way? If you're familiar with the EVPN designated forwarder technology, mm -hmm. right, it basically does the same. It understands that certain people can share the load of flooding because we are so highly densely meshed that it is guaranteed that the flooding will work even if I choose not to. It runs a distributed, basically, uh, election algorithm where everybody picks which node from the lower layer it floods higher up and ignores the others. And that allows you to reduce the flooding quite significantly. There are further dimensions of this problem where actually Rift has enough information we can build a globally optimal minimal flooding on the whole data center mesh. But, you know, all these things add complexity and I'm waiting, you know, whether I addre address the problem adequately in practical terms or whether we need to push it farther. But we have a lot of runway there we could optimize on the flooding front. Okay, now uh, you spoke about the directionality before. If I'm building a regular leaf and spine topology, then it is feasible to expect that there will be some automagic algorithm that will figure out who is at which layer. Right. The moment you get away from very regular topology and you start inserting shortcuts and so on, all bets are off. So how do you handle that with Rift? You people really want to know everything, right? <laughs> no, I just have the nasty questions. <laughs> no, no, it's a, it's a perfect question. I mean, you are driving it precisely along the lines uh, of the questions that the customers were asking when they were looking for a value proposition. Because the first thing is always the reaction like, eh, don't need it, works well enough, whatever, right? And then, oh, yeah, you know, could you do something about this? So the question of ZTP, of zero-touch provisioning, has two flavors. And people kind of split along those flavors. So one flavor of it is where people say, look, I'm willing to tell you which level in the hierarchy am I, and please detect miscabling for me because they were struggling with the problem that people started to arbitrarily miscable those fabric. And then your traffic, huge amount of traffic show up in arbitrary places. Not a good thing necessarily. So they are happy with the fact that they will provision a level on every switch. Like this is supposed to be a leaf and this is supposed to be an aggregation switch. And Rift will tell you when uh, things get miscabled. 
It will basically not form an adjacency and throw some kind of a MEEP trap. No, I'm not throwing MIB traps, right? Those, those times are gone. The other class of customer goes like, no, 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 no. I am most interested in taking a switch out of the styrofoam, cable it up, and I want this thing to come up with absolutely zero config whatsoever. And that goes very far. It goes to the point where people say, I don't want to address my fabric. I don't want interfaces addresses on my fabric. That's a lot of provisioning. There's no purpose. I don't want the system ID. Basically, what they say is, I don't want any addressing. This should be really a fabric. And I'm just running IP over it, forward IP. So what Rift does, and it's fully spec'd out and frankly working, is that it allows a full zero-touch provisioning. So the only configuration you have to put into your fabric is basically telling the guys at the very top, you are at the very top. And everything falls out of that. So the whole fabric auto-configures and comes up. Ah, so it's like a spanning tree protocol. You specify who the roots are, and everyone who is one hop from the roots is level two, and everyone who is attached to level two is level three, and so on. It's a good analogy. If you want more details, there is one interesting observation there that it is very beneficial to nail your leaves. Because if you miscable, your leaves may show up in funky places on the fabric. So th there, is, there is a bunch of additions there, but as principle, even you pretty much got it. It's basically a diffusion down when everybody just picks up, you know, the best offer in terms of what do I see the highest guy and I'm just one below. Except for spanning tree doesn't deal with things like um, what's the out-of-band management network and IP addresses assigned and how do I actually operate this thing? at a level that I understand. As an operations person, I'm hearing what you're saying, and part of me is going, are you trying to solve, what is it, RFC 1925? You're trying to solve a problem in the wrong place? You're trying to solve operation issues within a protocol that don't necessarily belong to be solved there? Does the question make sense? Uh, yeah, uh, I love 1925. You know, I, I quote it copiously, you know, like, best RFC ever written, ever. Yes, <laughs> <Ever>. totally agree. <laughs> Ever. <laughs> so <laughs> do I do that? So I give you a couple of examples of what people are doing to auto-configure fabric. And I find it utterly fascinating because everybody found a different solution, which at the end always kind of boils down to geolocation. So people put uh, GPS into the switches. Unfortunately, they realize that once they go underground, stuff stops working. There are people who discover the switches around them using LLDP and based on that kind of figure out where they are in the fabric. There are people who are triangulating Wi-Fi access points, believe it or not. So if we assume that we want a zero config, we have to solve it somehow. So the out-of-band configuration is a possibility. Right, which always boils down kind of to geolocation. Or otherwise, you have a protocol that somehow diffuses from a fixed point the information, right? Where are you? I'm kind of agnostic, a uh, customer like this ZTP approach. I gave them a basically a fully ZTP protocol uh, support and they dig it. Um, who am I to judge whether it's the wrong place to solve it? I don't know, Chris, you'll tell me. No, and those are all 
great points. I just think of the the additional uh, how do does all the configuration upstream mean which this are we back to controller based networking with a distributed state? I don't know, maybe like if I put ah. an SNMP strings upstream, or how does my uh, API REST credentials? How does that get pushed downstream? How to log in? Um, let's 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 get away from MIBs. You know, I love my SNMP, but let's say you have a streaming telemetry interface. How do you tell each one of the individual units throughout your entire fabric where to push your data? Where does the S flow get? Like all those kind of questions. That regardless, my entire perspective is focused on what I have learned in the industry is that an, every single network must be managed box by box, and we can't be managing things as a system. So I'm also oh. fine with that's the wrong perspective. Uh, no, there's a bunch of perspectives here. So my belief is that bandwidth is not special. We just made it so, so far. Now, what do I, do I mean by that? We do not understand how solid state disk low where leveling is working. We just go and buy them and we stick them. Uh-huh. And then we consume the storage. We don't understand how CAS rest cycles on the DRAMs, unless you, you know, overclocking some gaming rig, how this stuff is working and we don't care. And I think bandwidth, to consume bandwidth today, we make it quite difficult. We insist on managing lots of pieces in peculiar ways to be able to consume bandwidth. I think the promise of the fabrics is that we will get a component. So the stuff just works until it burns out. Okay. So if I may, uh, I'll try to explain it, maybe less biased than Tony. Uh, Rift gives you a facility to do so, right? You could still configure Seth 31 on every link. You could still do all the stuff. However, may you not want to, may you look at different ways of operating, there's a facility to do so. Uh, another impor- important point that hasn't been discussed is links in the same level. We are talking about regular topologies. However, as you start looking into 2018 and 2020, people who are doing machine learning, people who are doing more advanced stuff, there's absolutely willingness and need to provide this kind of links, most interesting on demand. So having facility within protocols that could accommodate using this kind of links when needed is important. And if you look at the most common silicon that just came out, they actually provide you facility to change next hop based on Q occupancy thresholds. So suddenly, because you hit particular point in your Q occupancy, you might change next hop, you might go to another link. In order to do so in loop refashion and near real time, you do need control plane on top. And for me, again, from kind of overviewing as working group chair, it's one of very important properties. It's really future-proof properties of Rift, how it can be used in topologies, in workloads that we don't really do today. So, so to paraphrase you, Tony, which I love, is there's a recognition that networking is not special. Well, let's hope, you know, that, that we, we will grow the business. <laughs> or at least in, in certain use cases. There are absolutely mm-hmm. other things, like I, like Dragonfly, you mentioned earlier. I think there's other specific use cases where definitely this might not apply because of specific requirements of that scenario. But in, in general, for the use case of just, you know, a common class architecture, clo architecture based spine leaf, maybe we're not all as special as we think we are. Maybe something that just gives you a predictable result 
with a predictable zero-touch provisioning from scratch and, and, and gives me some of these knobs that I can turn, but in general can provide me just this operational experience of here's what a fabric is, boom, connect it, and it just works. Maybe that's the developer in me loves that idea. I somehow um, look back a little bit on, on your question about you know this operation side because, I mean, it's inherently very, very, very important. And I gave just one perspective, like, okay, like you say, ZTP, bang, the stuff works, right? The, the worst thing, your switch doesn't seem to work, just replace the switch. That don't even look what's going on on the link. The other perspective, however, is like you said, that I, I want to manage this stuff. I want certain configuration being pushed up, being pushed down. Where are my, you know, analytics databases and so on? So what Rift provides is a key value store which allows you to push things from the top of the fabric or get the stuff from the bottom of the fabric to the top of the fabric. And I'm agnostic how it's being used. And one of the use cases that I saw is that people realize that getting the reachability up on a fabric, you didn't get any business done yet. You only have a fabric when you have the services up. And to provision and configure the services, you have to run a completely new layer of things on top which makes it slower and more complex. So for some very basic service configuration, they would like to, during convergence time, a certain kind of a key value store being pushed down. So the leaves already come up with basic services. So Rift has also this dimension, which probably you know, the operational guy in you will laugh, but I'm kind of very agnostic how people will use that. And people have very different opinions, right? So in your example, like, okay, not only does the super spine know it's super spine, it knows where is the real-time analytics database, and then goes the key value store to all the leaves and all the nodes in the fabric. And when they boot up, they already see on the protocol, here's my whatever analytics data store to push things to. And services in this context being networking services, not applications that users are consuming. Uh, look, I am very agnostic what people will do with that. I give them a key value store and I provide a mechanism where they can put very easily stuff into this key value store. It, you can apply policy on it so it doesn't go through the whole fabric if you want. And then the stuff will show up places and people will pick it up and do whatever they desire with it. So to, to rephrase what Tony is saying, it gives you a facility to flood or to transport limited amount of information in structured way. So you don't need to encode it in crazy community style. Like it gives you really structured facility to send some data that could be stored in a key value store database or somewhere else. Okay. And as Tony said, we could spend another 10 hours discussing the details. Yeah. But we have to wrap it up at some time. So let's do it right now with the realization that our networks are not so special. <laughs> if someone wants to know more, where could they get more information about Rift? Please join us on the ADF. Rift is working group in routing area. We are going to have our first meeting in London three weeks from now. Subscribe to the list. We are looking for people who are having ideas how to make things better, different. Please do participate. It's important for us. Come to ATF. Is there already some drafts uh, on the Rift Working Group page that I could read? Obviously, there are because Chris was reading the manual in the background. Let me actually, before you answer that question, say this is one of the most accessible RFCs I've seen in a while. It's a great yeah, job, so guys. We are working on making this stuff more readable. 
and left. Trust me, I'm an engineer. <laughs> it's getting there. Great three. I mean, Tony is a really good writer. So Young model is coming. It's already on GitHub. We are going to publish draft in a few days. We are working on additional use cases, so segment routing, distribution stuff, and use cases document. So there's going to be number of documents that when you read them, you know not only how Rift works, but how you can apply it in your own network, how you can configure it. If you need to do more, again, think of label distribution. Again, there's a way to do so. So there's going to be soon, I would say, critical mass of documents to build pretty much anything you think of in your data center. And if someone, after reading that, wants to get in touch with you guys, how can he do that? I'm very simple. I'm PRZ Papa Romeo Zulu at um, uh, juniper.net. Otherwise, I have an ITF email, which is very easy to find. I'm sharing other things. So, or just Google me. You know, I have a good footprint. Thank you. Jeff? So, I'm pretty active on uh, LinkedIn. I'm publishing a lot of stuff. You could always email me at jefftant at gmail.com. You could see me at a variety of different events. Obviously, I'm always at ATF, so I'm trying to respond within a day or two. Just hit me with email message or anything. And finally, Chris? The easiest place is at NetmanChris on Twitter. That is definitely still the, uh, the place I'm lurking these days. And you blog every second blue moon at? Ah, controlissues.net with a K, and I really need to get on that. <laughs> True that. It's been a slow year. And you can find me at ipspace.net or as at iOS Hints on Twitter and read my rants on blog.ipspace.net. Thanks for being with us for this hour. I hope you learned something useful. And next time, we'll dig into another idea how to solve routing in data centers. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Software Gone Wild. If you want to learn more about software-defined networking, network automation, and related topics, visit sdn.ipspace.net and explore our courses, books, webinars, and podcasts.